Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Curious K Podcast. Uh, this is another interesting episode, and I'm very excited today uh, because it promises to be a very interesting conversation. And as you know, on Curious K Podcast, this is a show where we have amazing conversation uh, with entrepreneurs, uh, ecosystem, enablers, and the goal of this is just to showcase. Uh, unique African startup. I mean, what is happening in the, on the African continent and everybody working to make impact uh, on the continent. On today's show, uh, we are having a very interesting entrepreneur. He is one of the veterans in the Nigerian tech ecosystem. Uh, he's been building stuff. He's also been supporting entrepreneurs. So he's working on both sides of the con. Uh, he's also an investor and and he goes by the name of Josh Akwata and uh, I'm very very excited to have him on the show today Josh thank you for joining us on Curious K podcast yeah uh thanks for having me Kalapo yeah welcome so how are you doing today how is it going oh I mean great uh the weather is good for the first time I mean it's been a little cold so for the first time uh there was enough sun for me to sit on my balcony and uh it just grab all that all, all of the missing vitamin c that uh, vitamin d that that had been lacking so felt really good it feels really good it's been a good day nice nice happy to hear that yeah so let, let's get into it josh all right i know you've been building startups uh, supporting startup for for years now so let's just get to know your background how did it start for you what was the journey like uh uh, building startup or running businesses? Yeah, th- uh, thank you. That, that's a good question because it lets me reject my memory. Um, and so I'm going to say my first experience uh, business of any kind was actually in the university. And so I was in my, I think, third year, second year or third year, I don't recall at the time, but I had taken a course on, um, I had gone into like Cisco networking. I had done a couple of courses. I was doing a course on certified ethical hacking. And um, I thought I was going to try to set up a, a company that was into information security, try to provide um, network management that would guarantee like the fidelity and security of information, you know, so because the security process starts from like the design, the management of the network. And of course, like, you know, um, license penetration tests and all of that stuff. So I, I set up a small, it, it was like a, it was an unregistered business. I could call it a consultancy. The name was Cyberfort. Um, I did, uh, I got a couple of business uh, pr- projects with it. We did even at some point dabble into a bit of uh, reputation management, but like digitally for a few, um, you know, people of note, um, including at the time, uh, we got a project with the Nigerian um, National Orientation Agency and uh, NAFDAQ um, and um, a, a boxer whose name is Bashavi, you know, and stuff like that. So that was my first exposure to the world of business. It was okay, but at the same time, it wasn't like structured and I was, I, I was a teenager at the time. You know, it did bring a bit of money, but then because of the lack of structure, it was hard, hard to compete for, for projects. It was hard to gain trust. You know, and so, I mean, eventually, I wouldn't say the business died. I mean, it did fizzle out eventually, but I wouldn't say it died because um, it was a starting point for my experience, exposure to business. It brought many valuable lessons. Um, and then 
after school, I worked for a bit. Um, I did engineering projects in the U.S. and in Nigeria. And then I started, uh, co-founded a company called Easy Hire. Um, I, I was CEO of Easy Hire for four or five years. And in that time, I mean, we're venture-backed, so we raised a bit of money. Um, but we were a an asset financing. I mean, we started as a rental company, you know, trying to create an, a, a platform, an environment for people to be able to um, make peer-to-peer rental transactions happen. So I, I have this stuff, you know, I underutilize it. I want that person to have it, you know, and pay me a fee for it. And so we tried to facilitate some of these transactions. I mean, we did a sizable amount, but because of like imminent risks in the, in the, that line of business in Nigeria, you know, somebody borrows a camera, returns it broken or gets missing, you know, the accountability system wasn't really in place. So we had to shelve the peer-to-peer method or peer-to-peer process, at least in Nigeria and Kenya, we had to shelve it for a more B2B approach and for heavier stuff. So vehicles, heavy equipment, and, and that's what Easy Hire was doing all the way until when uh, I stepped down as CEO. Um, the company, of course, one of the advantages of, of some of the lessons I learned from my previous life was at this point, I, I had come to understand structure. And so my co-founder and I, we've, um, we built a team that was able to stand on its own. And so stepping down, because we also need to understand that entrepreneurship is a career like any other career. I mean, for some, it's a life path, but for others, it's a career. And so at some point, I thought um, I've, I've done some work in this space. Um, I'm interested in working with entrepreneurs, but on the flip side. And so I resigned as CEO, um, of course, into the able hands of the existing structure. Um, I do I, I do still you know, support and remain a director, but um, my, the degree of my involvement is no longer executive. And... Um, on the other side of things, working with startups in an advisory support capacity is eye-opening because then you see um, or you, you come to realize what it feels like being considered an investor. You know, in this part of the world, I mean, in, in Africa, there's a there's some uh, uh, bittersweet relationship that investors have with startups. You know, the investor says, hey, send your report and you go back and forth and back and forth as a founder. Like this guy is stressing me or this woman is stressing me too much. You know, what have you done this month? How can we help you? It gets tiring. But eventually when you're on the other side of things, when you're on the investment side of things, you then understand why these things are important, right? But I would also say that um, being a founder for all the years I was, you know, running easy hire for provided valuable lessons. So as, a, as an investor, both as an angel investor or as a portfolio manager with um, a venture partner with MEST, um, it was able, I was able to you know, find middle ground between um, providing support to the um, founders and the startups, but also empathizing with their perspective and, and, and understanding and taking their needs for what they were and not trying to force anything on them. So, um, I mean, I did support over 60 startups. Hopefully, they consider me um, a good, you know, resource to work with. Uh, but that's been the journey up until, more, I mean, I, I've, I've been a partner at Lab8. Um, it's a venture capital like, fund. It's a new fund and an accelerator out of Toronto. Um, I've also, I mean, I've done quite a bunch of things. <laughs> yeah. Currently, I'm I'm um, I'm on the innovation team, um, 
with the United Nations uh, World Food Program. So yeah, that's that's my background in a quite a large nutshell. Yeah, thank thanks for sharing that, Josh. And uh, so so let's go back a bit. I would like to talk about uh, Easy Aya when you started. Uh, what was the why for you? I mean, what why why did you think Easy Aya was the was the business for you to start then? And and what was the process for you validating that idea? And I would just like to talk about that. And at a point, I know you had some issues with a clone, you know, of the business uh, some years back. And I mean, just I would just like you to talk more about on the experiences, yeah. some of the issues, I mean, the low points when you were building uh, Easy Aya. Yeah. So I mentioned that when I was, before I started Easy Aya, I was working as an engineer and um, working on construction projects. In, if you work on construction projects in Africa or in Nigeria, I, I did come to realize that there was a huge disparity between the um, the available the available uh, equipment to carry out. Because when you're doing construction, you know whether it's your grading roads or you're building bridges or whatever, you need uh, cranes. You need um, bulldozers, graders, all that stuff. And so I realized there was a huge disparity between what was available and what was required. You know, the infrastructure deficit in Africa is really high, especially in Nigeria. The equipment, however, to make these things happen, uh, the available ones are either very few or um, not really functional. And so that gave me, that inspired in some way, of course, I, I always I always like to say that the idea was divinely inspired, but this was like the um, the, the the product of my experience as well uh, with regards to renting equipment, and so I thought instead of starting with heavy stuff, um, why don't we first of all start with everyday things? Because you also realize that people rent everyday things a lot, or people would like to rent everyday things a lot, and so we did like a quick market research. Um, I had a co-founder at the time. And we went into, I mean, not a co-founder initially, a friend, because the business wasn't even incorporated then. And we went into Yaba, went into Surulay. I personally took questionnaires, flyers. I was asking random people, you know, are there things you borrow, you know, to make your life easier, better, how much you pay for these things. So I did this for like a couple weeks, months. And with all the feedback that, that we had, we felt, okay, well, we think there's, you know, there's room for a viable business where people can share stuff that they own for other people to rent. You know, so that was the genesis of Easy Hire. Of course, eventually, because of the risks I spoke about, we had to transition uh, majorly to B2B, like heavy-duty rentals, and eventually asset financing, which the business mostly focuses on now. Um, in terms of the case of plagiarism, plagiarism um, that was an interesting story because we yeah. had Idea Hub. We had Idea Hub at the time. I, I, I believe you're, you're conversant with that period. I yeah. think this was 2015 or so. Oh, it took 20, 2015, 2016. I'm not sure now. And so I was in I was in South Africa and somebody on the team emailed me or texted me or something and said, hey, Josh, there's this, I mean, you need to take a look. And I see there's some guys who are using the exact same name, um, Easy Hire, but with the S uh, because we're using a Z um, and um, same color, uh, like palettes, same patterns. So where, where we use blue, they use blue. Where we use black, they use black. The same. So our our tagline at the time was, um, I don't recall, but let's say our tagline was one, two, three. I'm just a random example. Theirs was three, two, one. Like literally, just switch it back. 
it was crazy <laughs> because sure. like it, it was insane. And at the time I didn't, I didn't know what to do. So when I came back, I, I went to speak with Helen Anatogo. She was the CEO of um, Idea Hub at the time. I know she had legal experience with Microsoft. So I spoke to her and she was like, look, there's no point suing and all of that. You know, let's see if we can drag these people, have like a media bleeds and, and, and you know, drag them and, and see what, how that fares. And so uh, I remember the first people I spoke with were TechPoint. Um, Diwali at the time, they were still, their office was at Idea Hub. So they were gracious. They gave me an interview. We spoke about it. They did an article, which is probably still up, um, and, you know, and asked me questions. And the funny part was we did our research. We went to check for who those people were. We couldn't pin them to an office. We couldn't pin them to anything. The only thing we could pin them to was somebody who had come as an intern uh, for like a kind of like, a visit at Idea Hub to come and see all the companies along with a smaller team from, I don't know, whatever university or program they came with. You know, he was one of them, in, you know, part of them. I don't remember his name now. Um, but so the, the, the whole, the, the way we drew it up eventually, because it was a nameless, ghostless competitor. <laughs> I mean, sorry, ghost-faced competitor. And we didn't know who. So, but that was the, that was the person we could draw, you know, draw an access to and say, well, we think this is the guy. Eventually, I mean, they, they, it seems they also gave their own side of the story, which was, which, you know, and so we, we, we did a couple of media, whatever, uh, media rounds. We wrote to, we realized at some point that they were in some incubator in a university in the Southwest. We wrote to the university and said, hey, do you know these guys? This is what they're doing. Because we had our proof. We had been registered since, like, they were not even incorporated. We were incorporated in 2015. We had been registered to websites since 2014. Look, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, that took its toll on us. And we, I don't think as a name, as a brand for what we were trying to accomplish, I don't think we ever really recovered. You know, sometimes people do certain things and they don't understand the implication of what they did. You know, somebody's trying to grow a business. We're working really hard, building solid relationships. We had we had international clients. And sometimes these international clients, because at the same time, because we only had the Z, these clients will send us emails and but mistakenly use an S instead of the Z in the initial days of the transactions and emails will go to the wrong people. And instead of those people to say, Hey, we don't know what this is about to respond and try to take the business, you know, it cost us a lot um, in many ways. And it affected the brand capital in a way that I don't think the brand ever really recovered from, but, but that's a story from another, for another day. Yeah. So what, what was like the key lessons for you then? I mean, do you think, uh, using simple names, uh, starting a business is better mm. than trying to use, you know, some other, you know, for you, it was easy, like E-A-Z-Y, right? Yeah. But these yeah. guys were doing E-A-S-Y, the way yeah. you actually want to spell it. So yeah. what are those lessons? Do you think those were some of the things you learned in, in yeah. trying to like, register or start off? Hmm. Um. First of all, I'd say after that experience, we went and bought all the possible domains that's linked to us, S, Z, C, in Nigeria and Kenya and Ghana and South Africa. At a point, our our domain bill was almost uh, was almost uh, up to almost up to five hundred or a thousand dollars every year. You know, so we bought a lot of domain. That was domains. That was the first lesson. The second thing, though, is um, I think it's important naming conventions, like how you name your business when you're starting is very, very important. That was an important lesson learned, but not just in the way you name your business, but in the way you protect your the, the, your, the name of your business and your intellectual capital. These are super, super important lessons, you know, and going forward from that experience, 
we realize that the brand is as important as the business itself. You know, when we, you know how it is when you get a new idea, you just want to run with it. You, you've never yeah. you think of the details and all of that. And so it's when you get hit with challenges, you then start to reflect and say, maybe we should have done this. You know, but I guess those were the two important lessons that we learned and we tried to implement uh, for the rest of the time. Of course, I, I should just chip in here and say, the the regulatory legal framework can be better you know we tried to write um um nira at the time and say hey these people are passing up on our business they're using the wrong like they were using it you know does ng as well why don't you do something about it we provided all the evidence and they say you need a court order and you go to court and court is going to take five six years so I mean, it's 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 tiring, but these are some of the things I, I, I know I'm jumping the gun, but a proper startup bill will address um, protection for technology companies in many respects. But I, I don't know if we're, we're, we're even there yet. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, this is this is very interesting, right? Uh, right now, we have over 600 OBS or Africa. Um, I think there are quite a number of incubation programs, accelerator programs, startup programs. And I think it's important for us to start documenting case studies like this because this is this is a lesson that I think will has the potential to stand the test of time, right? And hubs, for example, startup programs need to start talking about case studies like this. And we should be using relevant examples in our ecosystem, right? Not just every time we want to do something, we start talking about Uber, start talking about Google. This is very practical. This is real. And people still planning to start businesses or run startups, I mean, there's still potentials that they can still fall into traps like this. So mm-hmm. I think, um, I mean, this is very interesting. And having this conversation with you, I just think we need to start building case studies about startup in our ecosystem and look for a way to actually make this knowledge, this information available for everyone in that space, working to make entrepreneurship tribe. Uh, Josh, thank you very much for sharing that. Uh, so let's move to how you evolved your role from uh, uh, building Easy Hire to now uh, supporting startups. I mean, portfolios have messed. Uh, mm. Because, I mean, you're building stuff, right? You're building a startup. I mean, uh, why did you decide that you just want to step down as the CEO, right, and move on? You know, what was it like making that kind of decision for you at that point? Yeah, um, this is also an important question because um, I think that when you when you have one of the initial conversations I had when I was starting Easy High was with a friend, I mean, a mutual friend, he's um, Ahmed of Gigali, and he told me something about, um, you know, the trajectory of a business, of a startup. You know, you're building, you can be building for for the now or you can be building for the long term. And when you, early enough, when you determine which approach, you know, you want to take, that, that will influence a lot of the decisions you make in the line of the business, right? And so very early in the day, I, I, I figured out that what I wanted to build was a business that would be sustainable. Initially, we started, we got caught up in the bars. You know, I do this, the fundraising frenzy, all of that. But at some point I sat back and my co-founder and I, we spoke and we really reflected. And we, we remembered one of the reasons this business was started was for longevity. You want a business that will last the test of time. 
you know, and when you start to think about it in this way, you realize that there's nothing wrong in building at your own pace. There's nothing wrong in building slowly. There's nothing wrong in growing organically, you know, and with all of these things, I did realize if you're going to build for the future, you're not going to be there forever. So it's important that you set up a structure. I mentioned that entrepreneurship is a career like any other career, even though some people dedicate their lives to it and that's fine. For me, it was a career, right? I want to do this. I want to set this up. Success for me, the milestone for success for me was to leave infrastructure that could stand on its own. And I felt like when I had reached that mark, um, I wanted to transition from there. And then the transition is also important because I realized, like you were just saying a moment ago, a lot of the people in our startup ecosystem are building blindly. The only lessons they get from people who have tried to build stuff in, this, in, in Africa are on Twitter or at symposia or forums that last 30 minutes, an hour. You know, that's not really enough context if you're new to building in Africa. And so I thought, I mean, I may not have done uh, you know uh, all the amazing things in the world but from the experiences I, i've gotten trying to build a business in africa because building a business in nigeria is really tough and there are things that no nobody can teach you except if that person has tried his or her hands at it right and i thought there's a lot of people who are building blind why don't i try to support more people who are trying to start their own businesses with context and that was the inspiration for my transition really because i know like Nobody is going to tell you that when you're doing business in Nigeria, you how do you budget for kickbacks? I mean, it's not to be said, right? But the truth is, it's Nigeria. These things will arise. You know, how do you know that in registration, they will say it will take two weeks, but it will take two months? Or how do you know that when you apply for a license, you need to know somebody on the inside? And just beyond these things, the, 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 the entire concept of building in and for Nigeria is not something you learn on Twitter. It's not something you learn... Um, you know, randomly. It's something you learn for, from the experiences of people who have tried to do this. And not just me, if there are more people like me who have tried to build businesses, regardless of how that fared, and who are sharing their experiences with other startups, I think would have a more robust ecosystem because the failure rate for startups is still over 90%, 90-something percent. You know, but when you share experiences, when you give people greater context, it gives them a better chance of succeeding. You know, so that was the bulk of my work at MEST. You know, you sit with a portfolio. There's so many people trying to do so many brilliant ideas. You know, you know, sometimes you just, you look at ideas and you know this is a brilliant idea, but the same direction they're taking could be a pitfall for them. And you tell them and you save them three, four years of hard, of unnecessary hard work, right? And so these are the kind of things I, I was doing. And I did, I did it for a bit and I found fulfillment in it. And uh, after doing it for, for a mess, I thought, you know what, I want to do it on a larger scale. And so I feel very fulfilled continuing to support like programs that are designed for startups and, and amazing entrepreneurs across the world with the UN. And I think it's just very, it feels very rewarding for me because you're saving these people time. And by, by extension, you're allowing them create even greater value and have even better impact in probably a shorter time. So I think that's the value of the work that I currently do. That's that's absolutely great. And um, I would also like us to talk about uh, funding in the ecosystem, right? Uh, Easy IR was venture backed, right? How yeah. was it like for you raising funds at that time? Mm -hmm. uh, how can you compare that to how funding 
is like right now in the ecosystem? What do you think has been happening in terms of growth? Mm. Uh, I would just like to 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 to, to learn from me in terms of perspective or other. Mm. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows that right now it's it's crazy out there, and it's a good thing. Um, there's a lot more funding. It's still terrible. Um, as it like, I was looking at reports uh, some months earlier in the year, uh, some months ago, and I realized that the amount of venture capital that comes into Africa is still under you know two percent of you know the venture capital allocation to the rest of the world. Yeah, I do understand that. However, it's it's many many times much better than it was you know in 2015 or 2014, and that's growth. It's not the uh, most efficient way to grow. It's not the fastest kind of growth that we've seen, but at the same time, it's growth, and I'm grateful for that. I mean, now people raise, um, you know, the, the, first of all, when people talk about seed rounds these days, you're talking about like 100,000 plus. In 2014, 2015, the only people who would even come close to those numbers would be like maybe YC and uh, 500 startups. Yeah. You know, but now, now it's much easier. Like, everybody like 100 nobody even raises 100k anymore i see people do precedes of like you know in the millions and that's good for the ecosystem because the availability of resources to build you know makes it somewhat easy i mean not easier in terms of the implementation of the operation but just easier to get the right talent you know and, and you know acquire the resources you need to grow that's fine but compared to back then you really had to grind your way through you know I can be easy how I raised three rounds of funding between 2015 and 2019. Um, I can assure you that we sent out, we've, we had over a thousand investor meetings in the, in the course of the, those four years. The most of them being in the first two years. But what happened was after the first two years, we did realize that we needed to slow down, right? Because we were doing numbers. We're, we're, because of the nature of our business, it was pretty... Um, it was asset heavy, and so we, we had numbers to build on. And so we told ourselves, well, maybe you don't have to jump into the rush of trying to raise a lot of money. Maybe you should just keep growing your revenue. And um, and it worked for us. We did that, and we got um, the other last two rounds we raised were from investors who we just had like re- reasonable conversations with and said, we're going to back you. And we were able to determine the terms to a large extent of the investment how much we wanted to give away and because of how much we needed at the time. Um, so I think now, again, it's a much better climb. It can still be better, but it's a much better climb than what it was. I think, though, my, my point to startups here would be don't get carried away by the buzz. Only raise money if you need it. Raising money is not a metric for success. It's not necessarily a metric for success if you know what you're doing. And it puts a lot more pressure on you. So the fact that there is easier money to raise doesn't mean that you have to raise it if you don't have need for it. And then to people who will find it challenging to raise money because it's still very challenging, maybe not as much as before. I mean, I remember the first investor, the first investor who reached out to us in 2015 and said, Oh, they wanted to invest in 20% of the business. And we're so happy. And we got on the call and what they were offering was $15,000, you know? And so now, now I would, I mean, I'm sure it, Startups would be excused if they hung up on such a call today. In today, <laughs> but the point still being, it's not. It's still there are still bottlenecks to raising, right? And so the strategy is usually build relationships. I always tell people, founders, because at Mess we also used to invest, in in some sense, 
I always tell founders, investment, like many things, many other things, is an emotional decision. The people who are putting money in, they are human beings. Yes, they will ask you for numbers and metrics. But at the end of the day, especially at, for early stage businesses, like if you're less than three years old, you don't really have anything to show, right? I don't care, like, except, except if, like, if you're zero to two years, except if you're doing, like, remarkable numbers, which truly many people are not doing. Because even if you have 1 million users, we forget that the, the basics of business is you buy for like the cost of the money you make from what you buy should be more than what you spent acquiring, you know, that, that item that you're selling or that service that you're selling. Yeah. You know, so many people, even with 1 million, 10 million users, they don't have, they've not breached that, that, that uh, benchmark yet. So people are just investing on the basis of, well, I think these people can succeed. Emotional decision. Oh, I like the team. Emotional decision. I like the strength of the idea. Emotional decision. So it's important to build relationships, right? If you're trying to raise money, it's very important to build relationships. Of course, have the you know work ethic and all of that, but you know don't just shooting uh, cold emails to 100 investors it might be productive, but it'll be it will not be as productive as starting to email updates of your company. Have a list of investors. Email them updates every week or every, every every month, every quarter. I don't know how frequently people report these days. You know, send it to them. Send it to them. It will build up to a crescendo where you then say, "Well, we're looking to raise money in the next quarter." You've already established a pattern of information, and even if they don't feel like you're there yet, they'll say, "Well, maybe we can give these people a chance, or maybe we can bet on them because we've shown accountability so far." And that's the emotional decision I speak about. So just so I'm not quoted wrongly, I'm not saying investment is purely an emotional decision, but emotional, um, your, your, your human or your humanity plays a huge role in who people decide to invest in, which is why people will invest in their friends many times over and they will invest in strangers, which is why we complain that the same set of startups are raising more money than everybody else, not because they are going to be the most successful in the future, but because people can vouch for them, people know them, people have relationships with them, and those are the things that people are investing in. If you can tell us briefly about your work uh, at UN now, and and um, then we can talk about uh, the Nigerian startup bill. As of now, I don't think the draft is out yet. Uh, and I know you mentioned earlier in the conversation about Lego framework that kind of helps startups. So yeah. first of all, uh, share with us about your work at UN now, and then let's move to the to Nigerian startup bill. Yeah. Um, first of all, I have to say that I do not speak in any um, way on behalf of the UN or my team at the UN. I speak in an individual capacity, uh, but I, I do work um, on the innovation team at WFP. And so essentially, we're trying to solve um, issues around hunger, primarily issues around hunger. But gradually, we're also starting to expand the, the nets to cover more SDGs. So okay, working is that WFP? Can you create a program? Yeah. Okay, all right. So, yeah, that's fine. Um, expanding the net to include more SDGs, um, you know, trying to work with the private sector, public sector, governments, and all of that to, to enable um, ideas and innovation around solving hunger. You know, so we want to make the world um, a place where people um, have food to eat. As, as basic as it sounds, it's a huge problem. And the WFP does incredible work in this regard. I mean, I, I, I do recommend everybody should look them up. They feed, they feed um, hundreds of millions of people across the world every year, especially in conflict zones and all of that. Um, but having said that, I think um, 
I'm going to bring it home to Nigeria and talk about the startup bill that's being mulled um, or discussed, mulled over. I, I, I had a meeting like five months ago, maybe. Uh, but I mean, I'm not sure it was five months, but I think it was five months. I'll need to confirm. And in that meeting, I was invited to that meeting um, along with a couple of other stakeholders. I don't know what the criteria for invitation was, but I, I got a message. And um, in that meeting, there was a room of maybe, I don't know, 20 people, 20 something people. And it was a meeting with the DG of the NITDA and his team. It was organized by, I mean, I think the information is out there. The point I'm trying to make here is I strongly, and this is in best faith, but still I, I strongly question the integrity of the institutions, you know, behind the potential adoption and implementation of the bill. And when I mean institution, I don't mean the private institutions, I mean the government institutions. The reason being at that meeting, a lot of good things were said. The point of the meeting was bring stakeholders together. I saw a lot of, there were lots of prominent names or faces. I don't want to start calling names. You know, they spoke really well. They, they offered very valuable insights. Um, and at the end of the day, we took, they took notes and said, well, we're going to reach out to you guys with the feedback. And that was the end of it. All I know is a few months later, they came up with the proposal of um, a tax, like trying to tax startups or some stuff like that. Everything that was the exact opposite of what had been said at that meeting, right? And so I know I have questioned the integrity of the government in handling some of these things over the years, but this was a more personal experience, which is what makes me feel that a company, when a country doesn't have the political will, exercises like this, not being pessimistic, but they are often exercises in futility. Regardless, on the merits of the bill, I think there's a lot of positives in it. I think that it will definitely help, and these were my proposals at the meeting, to have some legal protection for startups. For example, setting up a startup court, right, or a court that caters to uh, technology startups or entrepreneurs. reason for this is the legal process in Nigeria on the average is very expensive. It's long drawn out, right? You, if you're going to sue somebody for something, it will take you so many years and so much. I remember one time Izzy Hag got into arbitration and every sitting we're paying half a million, I, 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 either half a million or quarter of a million, every sitting. How many startups can afford that, you know? So a, a, one of the things I proposed was a special court that addresses um, technology, company-related matters, um, protects our interest as well um, because you can always go there and get justice, whether it's from big companies owing you and refusing to, refusing to pay because that's also another thing that takes startups under. You know, lots of startups are in debt. A lot of startups are dealing with the big fish, small fish syndrome. So you're a tech startup, you want to blow, so you get a big client on your, on your roster and you're so happy, okay, it's time to pay, that's a problem, right? And they owe you an ending because they know you can't do anything and you needed them because you wanted it to be said that you've done business with X or Y. You know, so more protection is needed for this industry, the startup and tech industry, because a lot of jobs are being generated. But also I spoke about taxation and there's a lot of um, accusations of multiple taxation across the different climes where startups do business in, in, in Lagos. I mean, Nigeria especially, you know, startups are having to pay for this, pay for that. You know, and I think these things can be streamlined and make it convenient. The government will tell you there's a tax break for two years or for three years for if you start a new business in this line, blah, blah, blah. 
it is a lie. You try to implement it and see. It doesn't work. You know, the tax people will be at your door from day one. Like, tax people, I've come to my office before in Yaba, and the tax people were there before me, waiting for me. Like, what kind of behavior is that? Can't you, like, at least wait for me to settle in? We're talking of a one-and-a-half-year-old business, you know? And it's not even like they don't have no paperwork, no documentation, no proof of anything, just vibes. You know, okay, we think you are owing this. How? Why? We, You know, nothing. So, I mean, the, the challenges are the challenges are major, but I think a startup bill in principle um, is is useful. Some of the uh, components of this current bill that is that are being bandied around um, are also helpful in the long run. However, my issue is, you know, with the implementation. But I mean, I'm still willing to give them the benefit of the doubts, but I will not be holding my breath. All right, all right. Thanks, Josh. Always good to have a different perspective in terms of how this can be done. Uh, I just, I just hope. I mean, because I think I've been to like two, three different sessions about the startup bill, and I'm, I'm just very hopeful about the outcome. And let's see how that can impact uh, the startup ecosystem uh, in Nigeria. Uh, so, as a roundup, is there anything you'd like to tell us or talk about or share? Hmm. Um, <laughs> I mean, this 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 question kind of feels like when you meet when you meet a, a a partner, a potential partner, and you guys are talking about your lives in the past, and she's yeah. is like, she's like, is there really anything you haven't said yet? But um, I think what I would say is it's important as well that people um, are allowed number one to make mistakes, and number two are not, uh, I don't want to say, ju- well, judged by their mistakes. Because you see, there's a lot of lessons we can learn. The biggest, like whether it's in India, whether it's in Berlin and the US, Silicon Valley, the biggest um, tech ecosystems are built on the lessons of the mistakes that so many of the uh, uh, predecessors made, right? But in Nigeria, it doesn't really work because we castigate and we we you know we make life hard for people who make or try to share their mistakes you know and, and that's a challenge no industry grows like that no no sector grows like that so i think the point i'm trying to make here or my parting words would be for the tech ecosystem in nigeria to make it conducive for people to share their lessons because there's a lot of people who have learned so much and who have been through so much many of these success stories we celebrate now we're paved or the ways we're paved by people who went ahead who might not necessarily have succeeded or yeah. who made such a dent, you know, or such a mark in the process that it was possible for somebody else to go through on a second or third or even 50th track, you know. So let's create a, 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 a space or the opportunity, not necessarily a program, but just generally a, a consciousness that people are, allow, people are allowed to make mistakes. And many of those mistakes that they made and we castigate and criticize and mock and laugh at them for where the mistakes that made the way for you to be able to raise this enormous amounts of money that everybody's happy about and make such progress in the industry and you know uh, uh, be all that you think you are and all you actually are today amazing <laughs> thank you josh for that and um uh, thank you very much for being on the show it's been an exciting conversation with you yeah, I mean it's a pleasure. I feel like I've had the longest 
probably have talked too much. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, great, great to be on. Thank you, Kalakwa. It's a brilliant show, by the way. Yeah, thank you very much. This is amazing. And uh, thank you once again for being on the show. And thank you everyone for listening. Uh, feel free to share this episode with your friends and um, uh, keep the good reviews coming and see you next time. Bye-bye.